Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast, where healthcare meets business, with your host, me, Dr. Karen Litzy. And just as a reminder, the information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not to be used as personalized medical advice. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I am your host, Dr. Karen Litzy, owner of Karen Litzy of Physical Therapy, a boutique physical therapy practice in the heart of New York City. In this episode, we are talking about the legal essentials you need if you are a healthcare or fitness business. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know how much I bang on about the need for a good lawyer and accountant. And so today on the podcast, we have a good lawyer. So I'm happy to be joined today by Corey Sterling, an attorney and founder of Conscious Counsel, a health and fitness law firm, which won the Legal Elite 2020 Award for Most Innovative innovative fitness and wellness law firm, and most innovative legal document drafting and IP firm. The legal concerns for any business are never ending. For fitness entrepreneurs, the list of considerations can be even more daunting from employee contract disputes to injury lawsuits from clients. There's a lot that can go wrong. Corey is the go-to person for business owners in the health and fitness industry who need help navigating this legal minefield and avoid getting sued. He has nearly 10 years of experience in the legal and fitness industries and has assisted hundreds of entrepreneurs in drafting service agreements, privacy policies, independent contractor agreements, terms and conditions, disclaimers, and other important legal protections they require. Corey is also a group fitness instructor, yoga teacher, and author of The Yoga Law Book, which outlines business law basics for yoga professionals and business owners. So a big thank you to Corey. Uh, We talked about a whole host of things, including your legal paperwork, does a non-compete clause stick, what is duty of care, lots of great stuff. So if you are in the health or in the fitness business, and you're wondering if you've got all your legal ducks in a row, this podcast will answer those questions. Enjoy, everyone. Hey, Corey, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on and talk all things legal. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Dr. Karen, for having me. I found out right before we went on that this is video and audio, but I'm sticking with my choice. It's a, this is very raw me, Like I said, I just got back from Pilates class and uh, showing up as who I really am. It's perfect. And so now if people listening to the podcast, they're going to have to go over to YouTube and they're going to have to watch you on YouTube as well. I think it it adds an important element to the conversation we're about to have seeing, you know, my my formal dress as a lawyer and how I uh, I run the show. Exactly. And that actually leads me perfectly to the first question is, how did you land into this healthcare fitness space as a lawyer? I created it for myself uh, for two reasons. One, because I was miserable doing all the other sorts of law that I was doing when I worked at a big law firm. And it just sucked. And I was like, okay, well, I spent a lot of years and a lot of money studying to be a lawyer. And I love the idea of advising and working with people and helping them and finding creative solutions. So I don't really want to abandon it yet. And at the same time, I was just spending all of my time hanging out with people in the the health and wellness industries. Uh, Myself, I'm a yoga teacher and I started a yoga festival and 
I was always going to Pilates classes and teaching group fitness at Equinox and whatnot. So it was just a natural step for me to find a way to merge it. And the whole deal, like any entrepreneur out there who's listening, sort of the first year was like, okay, let's see if this sticks. Let's see if people act, if these people in these industries actually need a lawyer and uh, if they would feel comfortable working with a lawyer who does things a, a, a little bit differently, more tailored, suited towards health and wellness professionals. So the answer is like, I sort of just made it up um, and have built a, a, an online business uh, around it, helping over a thousand clients in 15 countries uh, over the past couple of years. Yeah, that's pretty amazing that you were able to kind of find that niche and plug yourself into it. Yeah, it it is and it was. And the coolest thing about it is that it was very natural and easy. So for any entrepreneur who's listening in any way, I think the starting place where I came from, also there was a sense of frustration that lawyers suck and a lot of people don't want to work with lawyers. And that's what I saw in my first two years of practice, that people were dreading the experience. They were nervous. They were apprehensive. And so I just really, I started from a point of, what, who's the type of lawyer that I would want to work with? And for any entrepreneur, you're thinking, okay, I'm solving a problem. What is the best? What is the problem that I want most solved in my own life? And you sort of take it from there. So yeah, it's cool. But I always believed that the right people would find me. And that if I put myself out in the right way, i.e. wearing a tank top um, to record a podcast talking about the law, that the the right people would understand and it would resonate with them and they would they would want to work together because they understood who I am and how I do things and I've just stayed true to that the whole way through. Sounds great and it like I said it sounds like you've definitely found your space which as an entrepreneur is something that is not easy to do right away. You know, it takes as trial and error it takes time and so to find that space not saying that didn't take time for you but to find that space. And once you're there, that's usually when you're doing your best work. So with that said, let's talk about some of the legal essentials, if you will, that healthcare or fitness professionals need to know as they're starting a business. So basically nobody wants to get sued. Yeah. Yeah. I, I made an online course in 2022, which was called don't get sued got really creative with it, but also it, I, it, <laughs> it, it resonated with people because you're right, no one wants to get sued. So the I guess if, if we're going to start at a very, very bird's eye view, high level perspective in thinking about this, the one thing that you have to understand as a business owner is that you will be opening up yourself to liability. And, and I'll just introduce a couple of terms that will help set the frame for all of this. So the first term to understand is duty of care. And what a duty of care basically means is that you have a responsibility to make sure that someone does not get hurt or suffer damages by virtue of you facilitating an activity for them. So if you're a physio and someone's coming in to see you and you perform the services and they get really hurt or you make a mistake or something happens or whatever, they suffer damages, they're not able to work. You had a duty of care to make sure that person didn't get hurt. They got hurt and now you're and now you're in trouble and, and now you're liable. So where how I always explain the big picture perspective to an entrepreneur, let's say, who doesn't really understand anything about the law or what they need. One thing is keep in, keep in mind this concept of duty of care and the relationship for the people you provide services to. And the other thing you want to think about is what are the different relationships you are going to have in the course of your business? So are you going to have employees? Are you going to have contractors? Are you signing rent, uh, a, a lease with a landlord? 
Do you have a business partner? All of these are different commercial relationships in your business. And sort of the formula to winning the legal game is to have a written agreement in plain English that both parties understand that communicate the expectations of that relationship. And really, if, if you put your business on a piece of paper in the middle and you draw a line to all the different relationships you have, the goal should be in each relationship that you're communicating expectations openly and honestly. And the reason why that's so important is what I've learned about being a lawyer is that most of the problems will come from some non-communicated issue between the parties or a misalignment of expectations. So the more proactive you can be about both, the better. And that's how you can really have a, a framework for success. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm happy to report that I actually have all of that covered in my business because I did hire a lawyer when I started my business to make sure that all of this stuff was shored up. But what I do see and hear from a lot of people is, well, what do I need a lawyer for? I can incorporate in some states, at least here in the United States, I know you're in Canada, you can incorporate your business on your own. I live in New York, really hard to do here. Um, and they could say, well, I could just copy and paste other people's paperwork for for your intake paperwork and things like that. So what is your response to that? Well, firstly, I'm happy that you're covered, which is awesome. Because yeah. a lot of the times that I that I do podcasts, it'll like after I share that little bit, sometimes there's a meltdown where the podcast host is like, oh my God, I should have had this and and whatnot. So I'm very glad that um that you've taken care of everything, Dr. Karen. Okay, so my response to that would I'm, I'm going to explain another concept as it relates to law, because the point of this is like practical information that everyone can actually understand and use today, not even not even use tomorrow. You can use this today. So there's something at law that is called your legal position. And that's if if and when an issue or a problem comes up, the size, nature, duration, stress level, expense of that problem will be determined by what your legal position is in that particular situation. The, the stronger and better your legal position, the more, the, the less you have, the less time, effort, stress, problems you're going to have around it. And the worse your legal position, the more problem, stress, blah, 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 all problems, how bad it's going to be for you. So if we use an example of a waiver of liability, okay? So what a waiver of liability does, and maybe we'll speak about it at more depth, or maybe this is all that we'll speak about it, but a waiver of liability is essentially a document that negates that duty of care. And what it says is, okay, before facilitating these activities, I'm going to tell you what we're doing, how we're doing it, what the risks are, what happens if those risks materialize. And in exchange for me offering the activities to you, you agree not to hold me legally responsible. They sign the document. It's all good. Let's say running through that scenario, something happens, someone gets injured. So now when someone gets injured, they realize, especially in, in the United States, and in our law firm, we have lawyers called in the United States, and I'd say 85% of my clients are in the USA. So uh, I, I have a very, very good understanding, and we have lawyers who, who are called to the bar. Um, so basically, in that situation, someone's going to hire a lawyer and say, oh, I did this thing, and they hurt my neck, and now I can't turn right, and I'm a program developer, so I can't look at the screen, and I can't code, and I earn $220,000 a year, and I'm only 26 right? Now there is something significant at stake. And that person is going to hire a lawyer to look at the situation, 
and send a demand letter to you and say, hey, my client came to work with you, you know, came to work with you, suffer these injuries. And, and now they, you know, they're looking at a lost income of this amount of money plus stress and, and pain and damages and moral problems and all right, the gamut. They're just mm-hmm. gonna put thing out there. Okay. Now, here's where your legal position comes in. Let's say you were starting your business and you're like, wait, reliability. Oh, like my cousin Bill has a really good one. I'll just borrow his and use his. You never really read it. You never really understand it because you probably never studied law. At that point, uh, you're using that agreement and this person who got injured signed that document. So firstly, when you uh, when you receive that email from the lawyer, likely you are going to, for better terms or worse, poo your pants and just be like, holy Everything I've ever worked for is now at risk and in mm-hmm. jeopardy. And a lot of it's going to come down to what is written in this document. So now you're going to go, you're going to maybe at that point, you'll hire a lawyer and the hire, lawyer is going to look through the waiver and they're going to be like, hey, this isn't really a great waiver. You didn't outline the equipment that was being done. You didn't specify specific injury of, you know, um, post-concussion syndromes or inability to look at a screen or all those things that are really relevant. These people actually, they have actually a pretty valid claim against you. We should start looking to either settle this or call in the insurance company or deal with, and now then it's like, then it's actually a problem. The The flip side to that is when you start your business, you've customized documents that are drafted by a lawyer who understands your industry, very, very specific to your actual practice and what you do. Hey, you got injured using this machine, this type of injury, you know, we told you about all of these risks before we worked together. We were not negligent in providing the services. In par- you know, in provision eight, you signed away your right to sue us. As such, you have no legal standing. We hope that you feel better. We're very sorry about this. You know, a, a five-minute mm-hmm. email for your letter to write. So that's that's a story and an, an, an example. And I've I've been through that a lot of times. But if the question is why would you not copy documents, it's because if, if you never need the documents, then you can copy them and you could not even have any documents if you're never going to need <laughs> right, them. Right, right. But if the situation comes up that it actually, the life and death of your business or hundreds of thousands of dollars depends on what is written in your agreement and what your legal position is, you'll want something that was done by a professional and something that is actually going to protect you for the type of risks that you're operating with. Right. And that's specific to you. Not like your cousin who has kind of a sort of same business. And so I'm just going to use theirs. Yeah, it's the the analogy I've used. I, I've done a lot of hiking. So I went to Everest Base Camp and I went to Kilimanjaro and I went to Aconcagua. And, and obviously I've been a lawyer for this whole time. And so I'm always thinking about how law relates. And it's sort of like using someone else's waiver is like hiking up a mountain wearing someone else's shoe. It's like, okay, do I have shoes on? Yeah. Like, do I have an agreement? Yes. Are they mine? No. And it's like, once you're walking for however long, you know, six, seven hours, and then you get a blister and then something bad happens, it's just only going to get worse. So that, that that's sort of one analogy to make sense. But it everything, every aspect of your business should, should be supported by legal documents specific to the relationships that you want to have. Remember, you asked me what, what advice would I give to an entrepreneur or the essentials. You're communicating expectations in your commercial relationships. And when you sign something that you're not sure who wrote it or what it says or what should be there or what should not be there, you, you're you being legally bound to expectations now that maybe you don't want to have and you don't even have the foresight to realize you don't want to have it. Right, right. Makes perfect sense. And I think that's great advice for any entrepreneurs listening or budding entrepreneurs. 
um, who really want to do things right the first time. Like I'm a big believer of like, let's just do it right the first time so that you're not playing catch up down the road, which of course I've done and it stinks. So now I like to try and get things done the right way first, you know? That, that's it. That's exactly it. And like, even in my, I'm happy to share in my life as an entrepreneur, go, going back to when I started, if I could give myself any advice, it would have been find an amazing accountant from the start. I say that to everyone. Get yeah, a good accountant. Yeah, because it's, you know what, I'm, I've been in this for six years. For three years, I had a lousy accountant. I didn't know. I didn't care. I was all the classic entrepreneur excuses. Mm-hmm. And then now that I've started working with someone excellent, I'm in such a better position. And it's like, for me, it solidifies the importance of working with specialized individuals in their field who can help set you up for success. Yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of, you know, working with people in your field, let's kind of make a right turn here and let's talk about employees, right? So as a business owner, you may get to that point where you want to hire people to work with you. So they could be full-time employees, part-time employees, or contractors. So can you give the audience a little bit of compare and contrast on who who is considered a an employee and who is considered a contractor and why it matters for your business i'm happy to answer that question and it's i think it's probably if there would be a sleeping giant of a legal issue for for most small businesses it would be the <clears throat> the contractor employee classification and i had a conversation today with uh with a studio owner in Michigan who was had been operating for a bit was completely oblivious to all of it and I had to share. So this is really what it comes down to. First things first, in, at least in the United States, it comes down to the your, you have a unique state test. So it's on a state by state basis. And each state has a different test of determining whether someone is a contractor or an employee. There's a spectrum for this. And it's a, a wide spectrum and each each state has their own unique rules. There are states like California, which is the most extreme. And California has a test which says, if anyone is doing the work of your of the core function of your business, doesn't matter if they work one hour a week, at law, they have to be an employee. So if you're a personal training studio or a CrossFit box and someone's coming in to teach a CrossFit class, as an example, in California at law, they have to be an employee. Conversely, there there are other states that are more liberal, like Texas is an example of a pretty liberal state uh, when it comes to this test. But this is what everyone needs to know. So first things first, it's it's going to be state specific. So you'd want to have a look and understand what what your state rules around this are. And speaking to general principles, it always comes down to how much control you have over the way the services are being performed. So it's really a control test. And the thing that everyone should also know is that it's not, it's very not, it's not a binary, it's not like black or white. It's not like, oh yeah, for sure, this person's totally an employee or this person's totally a contractor. There's always going to be a set of indicia that uh, a court or a board or whoever is reviewing this situation is going to look at. And they're going to look at the different indicia, indications of what makes an employee or what makes a contractor. What does the written agreement say? In practicality, how does the relationship play out? And based on all of that, they would say, okay, this person's clearly a contractor. This person's clear an employee. As a lawyer who works with, you know, small health and wellness businesses, 
I understand the, the increased cost of working with employees. So often clients are approaching me and saying, I want, they have to be contractors. I just want them to be, I don't want the paperwork. I don't want the account work. I don't mm -hmm. want the filings. I don't want to do this. I'm like, cool, I totally get it. And I say, awesome, we can do that. But just so you know, the way that the services are being performed have to change in order for that. And you and you get to choose. Like, So you can either choose, if you're going to be contractors, accept that it's going to be this way. Because for me as your lawyer, if you get audited or someone makes a claim against you for unemployment benefits or some sort of issue from a worker, you, we're going to have to conclusive, you need a strong legal position. I've already introduced legal mm -hmm. position, you know. So in, in essence, it's going to come down to how much control you have over the services. And I think the best, the best way to start and understand what a pure contractor really looks like is, and I'll just give an example for a woman who works for my law firm. Her name is Mallory, and she's a graphic designer. So she comes up with the logo. She comes up with the stuff. I send Mallory an email. Hey, Mallory, this is what I need. I'm not paying for Mallory's software. I'm not telling her what design program to use. I'm not telling her what it should look like. I'm not telling her this, I'm not telling her that. She sends me an invoice for the work once it's complete. I have a work for hire provision in there, so I'm paying for it, but otherwise she would own part of it. But basically I'm a law firm, she does graphic design. She has her own business, she's got other clients, she's doing all these other things. And I'm asking her to do graphic design for me. That's a classic contractor. Classic, and I'll stop talking in a moment, just so you can ask any questions, but a classic employee role would be someone who's working the front desk of your, let's say you have a space, someone who works the front desk. You tell them what hours they have to be there. You give them a book of processes of how they have to follow. In any situation, they're always doing exactly what you tell them. And you know they're wearing a, a business shirt. They've got their own business email. All of the indications are that they're fully under your control. You can tell them whatever to do. You can tell them to leave. You can tell them, you know, within mm -hmm. reason, obviously. And, and that's really the, the, the starting point to think about the question is how much control do you have over it? Yeah. And, you know, I, it was always under my understanding that let's say I have a contractor that works for me and he or she can decide when they want to see the patient. The time they want to see, I can't say to them, you have to see patients Monday, Wednesday, and Friday between three and seven. And that's your, those are your hours. That's when you have to be in the clinic. I'm controlling that. Um, and at that point, I, it, it's my understanding that, that, well, this might be a part-time employee, um, that they're kind of checking in, checking out, um, and they, you know, they do not have another job, they or they're PRNing somewhere else, they don't have a business through which they're doing providing you with these contractor services. Yes. So what's what's very what's important about what you've said of, of all of the points is most important that if you're telling them where they have to be and mm -hmm. when, mm -hmm. then that, that's an indication of control, just from like we're real people, right. real words here. How much are you controlling the way the services are done? Another example of control is if you say, okay, at our space, we want all the clients to have the exact same experience with every, every worker we have. So we always open like this. After 10 minutes, we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. You have to offer them a towel and drink espresso with them and talk about politics, whatever. Obviously, none of those things exist. But let's say if you were mandating that certain things need to be done. Now, 
the sort of the workaround or where when I when I'm in a position where I work with clients to where they say, okay, it has to be a contractor for me. How do I do that? How you can say that is you can have a contractor agreement where you say, you know, there can be a heading scheduling. You will provide your scheduling hours to us and provide windows when you will be available to see clients and we will book as such. Then let's say, you know, three to three to seven on a Tuesday and Thursday, you can have a conversation with the worker where you say, you know, would you be available Tuesday three to seven? And if they say, yes, I am available, I can come in then, that's different than you telling them that they have to come in. So mm-hmm. a lot of it is framing, um, it's it's framing around that. But yeah, other factors are, do they work with other people as well? Uh, do you restrict their ability to earn income outside of working with you and something mm-hmm. like a non-compete clause or not? So there, there really is is a lot there and we could spend a lot of time talking about it. But the basic thing that you want to think about is the, the more freedom they have, just think of them owning their own business mm-hmm. and contributing a small part into your business. And right. Right. Their business, their, and also like, if, for example, let's say they can't make it, they, the, at law, a contractor should be able to subcontract out to someone else. Like, oh, I can't make it. My buddy Tim is going to come by and do the cert. Obviously, if you're in a studio where you have relationships with clients, mm-hmm. that may not fly. So there are there are a lot of things to to think about. Yeah, it, it, it's complex in by its very nature. Yeah. And I think the the bottom line, certainly for people living in the United States, is check out your state law. Like you said, California, that's very strict. Um, and it's interesting because I've heard of other therapists who are working as a contractor full time. So 30 to 35 hours a week and their schedule is set by the clinic. Yeah, but they pay them as a contractor, and I'm like, I, I, I mean, I don't know the law in your state, but that does not sound like a contractor to me. The one of the biggest rules about that I've learned about life through being a lawyer is that it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. Mm-hmm. If, if some, because I see a lot of things that are not being done correctly, and I, I don't judge, I don't really care. Um, my job is to represent my clients and provide the best service and let them know the, you know, the the correct way to get protected. But if if in laws, especially one of those things that if you look at what other people are doing and you think it's acceptable, it's sort of the same as like borrowing a downloaded template or a copy of something. Mm-hmm. Just don't I don't I always tell my clients like it doesn't I don't care what anyone else is doing. Focus on yourself. Do things properly. Set yourself yep. up to succeed. Because yeah, like it's te- it's sort of maybe it's like drinking and driving. Like maybe in some context, it it's tempting in the moment to do it because you see other people doing it and they get away with it or whatever. But it's like super dangerous and and wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and again, because every state is different, you can't look at what one person's doing in one state and apply it to your own. At least talking about here in the United States, and I would assume in other countries as well, there are different rules and regulations on the books. So like you said, don't look at who Sally, whoever, who owns a studio in Colorado, don't look at what they're doing because it's going to be really different to what you're doing. And it, it kind of gets to that, you know, that saying of um, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. Yeah. And a lot of people take that and apply it to legal issues or business issues and I don't know what, what is, I mean, my response is like, oh, that's not smart, but what is your response as a lawyer for that? 
I would think those people have never been audited for misclassifying a contractor as an employee. Right, right. That's what that's what that's would be the the first bet. And <laughs> and look, I'm you know as I mentioned, I build my business by being myself and being honest and transparent. And like I really honestly, I I, I don't judge anyone for any decision. I get that everyone's in a different process in their business and wants to do business a different way. And that is what makes the world an exciting and, and magnificent place and an interesting place. Um, so yeah, I, I think that the key is for the people who I work with, I want them to be fully protected because I've seen day in and day out the problems, the issues, the crisis. I've seen businesses go under because they misclassified workers and they got back taxes for seven years, plus penalties, plus interest. And the bill, and it's like you right. work so hard every day of your life for something. And yeah, it's 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 like wearing a it's like wearing a seatbelt. It's it's a personal choice. If someone chooses not to wear a seatbelt, I've no, I've nothing to say if they're endangering themselves. But in the realm of what I can control, I've I've been through enough in in this industry yeah. to see how harmful it can be. And the solutions, like the whole point of my law firm is to make the solution simple and easy. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And and now you mentioned this before. I want to circle back to that. And that's the non-compete clause. So oftentimes, certainly a physical therapy world, sometimes you have to sign a non-compete clause where maybe you can't work in another clinic within a five-mile radius or a 10-mile radius. I live in New York City. Do you know how hard that is to say you can't work? In another clinic within a 10 mile radius, you have to go to New Jersey. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's like, that's kind of, so it's like, how, how are these non-compete clauses held up? How binding are they, I guess, is the question. Okay. Well, no, the answer is generally speaking in, in our industry, in the context of what we're speaking about, they are very, very rarely held up. So the, the design of the non-compete is not for physical therapists who live in Manhattan and who are work, who work, you know, have four jobs where they work 10 hours each at each clinic. That wasn't mm -hmm. when lawmakers came up with non-compete. They weren't like, let's do this. But because the our, our industry essentially is very small and underserved and the, we're caught in the fishnet of all of these laws, but they're not designed in a practical way. They don't apply to our businesses and how they work. Generally, what I would say is non-compete clauses almost, I would say 95% of the time um, will not will not apply and, and will, will not be applicable and will not be valid. The biggest problem around them is there's a misconception that they will apply. Mm -hmm. So for example, let's say I'm a, a physical therapist and I'm at a clinic and I'm really scared because I'm signed a non-compete and my boss like... And they're they're not going to reach out to me to, or another lawyer to review the document and tell them like, hey, this actually is worth nothing. You know, I can respond on your behalf. That's like it's laws can be like that. Some people just they just don't know and they don't they never figure out uh, these things. But to answer your question, I'm going to give you one. So the reason why non-competes normally will not apply is because they're they're. They impede someone's liberty and ability to make a living, which in the United States is one of the most important tenets of everything that the Constitution stands for. So governments and courts will do everything they can to support people being free and able to earn a living in their own profession. 
Now, the design of a non-compete in theory is if someone was working in a particular industry in a highly specialized job, being compensated at a very high rate for doing something very specific, it wouldn't be fair if I worked for a pencil company and I you know, learned everything about this company and this industry and how it works. And then like, oh, I, you know, another pencil company just comes by and offers me a job to work with them. So it, it's that, that was like the, the idea of it is that it, it wasn't, oh, for part-time workers who are working in multiple jobs of offices that are up everywhere that they should be restricted. But I'll give you one example. And so when it comes to non-competes, the, the umbrella is always reasonableness, mm-hmm. sort of like one of those ambiguous legal terms that they'll always talk about, but like, how reasonable is this restriction on this person? So if you're looking at someone who's getting paid $45 an hour and working 10 hours a week at a particular place, and you want to say, hey, you can't work for anywhere in 10 miles from here, that's completely unreasonable. You could ask 10 out of 10 people on the street, everyone would say it's unreasonable. Here's an example, and uh, this was with a conversation I had with a client today in Florida. My client has a conversation, has a uh, works in physical therapy with a college, a big college in Southern Florida. And they have a business and they allow the workers of their their business to provide services to the athletes of this college. Now, the question was, would it, could I put a non-compete in my employee agreement saying that you can work wherever you want and do whatever you want, but you are not allowed to be employed or, you know, work with someone to be involved in something so that you are involved with this one particular employer which is the college. Mm-hmm. And that's an example where it would it is reasonable. Like, hey, you can work with anybody you want except this one company. It's still totally fair for them to go out into the world and find any job and do whatever they want. So mm-hmm. it is on a case-by-case basis, but, and I gave a very long, robust answer because I want people to learn about this stuff because I, th- I think it's interesting. But the answer is that 90, 95% chance that the non-compete that you signed actually would never stand up in court. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. It was a great explanation. And I love the examples. And I have one more legal question. And that is, uh, I think, pretty timely nowadays, coming out of the main sort of pandemic era that we are living in. And that's working online, specifically, let's say you're teaching classes or something like that online versus teaching classes in person. And when we say classes, I mean, this could be group fitness. uh, It could be a group exercise. A lot of physical therapists, not just personal trainers or Pilates or yoga also teach group classes. So what is the difference from a legal perspective from teaching those classes online versus teaching those classes in person? The, o- the only difference, there's not too much. Um, what I would say is the big difference comes down to the standard of care. So first things first, you want your waiver to cover all the different ways that you offer services. So that would be in-person, online, pre-recorded. And the reason why is because the risks of each of those activities are different. And so you'd want to make, like, like I mentioned, you want a, a waiver to be specific to you and your business and what you do, what the risks are. So because the risks of on-demand are different than a Zoom class, because on-demand, you're not able to see what they're doing. They're, you, if they're doing things totally wrong, you can't say anything. You can't ensure the space around where they're practicing is safe, all that sort of stuff. So that's different from a Zoom class where you're not able to provide physical adjustments and you can't see everything that's happening versus being in person, then being in front of you, all that sort of stuff. But uh, 
standard of care is a concept that goes hand in hand with duty of care. And duty of care basically means you have a responsibility to make sure someone does not get hurt or suffer damages. A standard of care is how, how much care should a person, how would an ordinary professional in that context have, have done? So the standard of care for someone who's providing one-on-one -on -one in person assistance would be much higher than someone who's recording a pre-recorded video that will be viewed later. Mm -hmm. Does that does all that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And so do you have to have separate legal documents for each of those? No, you you should have you should have one the two places where it would come up would be the waiver of liability. So you mm -hmm. want to make sure the waiver covers all of the different ways that you offer your services and Got then it. the client service agreement, which is the relationship between you and your clients. That should also have some sort of verbiage about online classes. If there's any particularities about that, um, image use comes up like media releases. Mm -hmm. um, also, timeliness or recording or sharing recording of classes with other people. I've I've seen you could choose any random issue. I've seen I've seen it manifest into a whole lot of problems. But generally speaking, th those would be the the areas where you'd want it covered. Okay. Well, that makes perfect sense. And now as we start to wrap things up, what are the main points you want the listeners to take away from this conversation? I would want every, I would want the listeners to just think about setting everything up properly from the beginning. I think mm -hmm. first and foremost, if, if there's one thing that I, it constantly happens with clients where I hear them say something like, I wish I just did this from the start once they're already in the middle of a problem and like it sucks and it's easily preventable. And it costs money and it's an investment, but it's an investment that really protects you in the long run. And then also I would say, don't think that law has to suck and don't think that it has to be difficult and don't think that it has to be stressful. It's really cool uh, at our law firm, I've got now like 315 five-star Google reviews, which I never really thought when I started asking for reviews. I mean, after a while, I got really into it to like make sure everyone would always get five stars because we started with so many. But what, what I'm saying is, I've just seen a lot of people transform the way they look at this from being like, this sucks, this is terrible, I hate this, it's annoying, whatever, to being like, whoa, I actually now understand the relationship I have with the people I work with. Or, you know, I feel so much better that I've communicated with my clients exactly what type of relationship I want to have with them. So I guess it's summarizing that it would just be, be open to be, you know, surprised and delighted by the possibility of enjoying law on the on the journey as an entrepreneur the journey of an entrepreneur you you have to be friends with your bookkeeper you have to be friends with your accountant you have to be friends with your lawyer um it, other services that you use you, these are people that are look at them as angels who are conspiring to help bring your business to the next level mm -hmm. instead of someone who's just taking a whole bunch of money and when when you can make that shift in perspective you'll see them differently. You'll see the processes differently and, and you'll do a lot better and you'll have a lot more fun. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That is a great uh, wrap up for our talk today. And before we cut out, I have uh, one last question and it's a question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast and that's knowing where you are now in your life and your business. What advice would you give to your 20 year old self? I assume you were in law school maybe. At, At that 20, point, I was not. I, I used to, I worked in professional sports. I've traveled the world a lot of times. So uh, when I was 20, I was in grad school in, in the University of San Francisco doing a master's sport management. Whoa. Uh, I think th this is what I'm going to share. And, and it's only because it's pretty relevant in my life. 
But I recently read a book that's called, it's a very old book. It's called The Richest Man in Babylon. And I now I'm getting, a, in the last couple of years, I've gotten much more into personal finance and learning and reading about this stuff for a long time. I didn't care at all. And there's a concept in this book where they say it's just like, basically to summarize the book, and it's not that long, take 10% of all of the money that you earn and just invest it for something in the future. And I was recently sitting with the the guy who helps me with all of my financial stuff. And he and I were talking and looking about things and whatever. And I was just like, holy smoke. Like, even if I just had been following that from six years ago when I started my law firm, it would be completely different. So now I'm like 100% committed. I'm always doing it. But if I were to go back and tell myself some something, it'd be like, just set up, you know, set up some account and put 10% there and don't touch it and just put that into some form of savings. That would be, that would have been really helpful advice. Yes, that is great advice. And that's the exact advice I give to the entrepreneurs that I work with in my program. We focus a lot on, on, um, on that specifically. So thank you for reinforcing that great advice. Now, where can people find you if they want to ask you legal questions, they want to hire you, where can they find you? That you can find, and I'm sure in the show notes we'll include yes. everything, but yes. uh, on Instagram, it's Conscious Counsel, at Conscious Counsel. You could go to Google and type in Conscious Counsel. My name's Corey, C-O-R-Y. You can write me an email, Corey at ConsciousCounsel.ca and say what's up. And I hope you enjoyed listening to this. And my only regret is that the famous Oliver, the cat, I thought I was going to be nope. the episode where he, where he jumps up, but he just hasn't. Nope, 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 not at all. Ever since we started putting these up on YouTube, he's been like, nice try. I'm not going to like be your puppet to get more views. So he oh. doesn't do it anymore. You know, yeah. cats, so, they know. Yeah, cat, cat, cats are, are very, I'm slowly becoming a cat person. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're fun. They're fun to have around. And it, so, so are you. Oh, thank, this you, thank great. you very much. I'll put I'll thank put you in the same category as cats. Really fun to be around. And I showed up on the screen. So and you showed up on the screen. So so a tick up a tick above. Um, but, yes, but thank you so much for coming on. Um, I appreciate it. And again, everyone, yes, all of this will be at the show notes at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com or wherever you get your podcast on whatever platform it's on. It will have all of this information in the show notes. So Corey, thank you again for coming on. Great conversation. I really appreciate it. Dr. Karen, thank you for having me. And everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to leave us your questions and comments at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. Dot com.